Before we get started, we want to let you know that AHR Interview is available to stream and subscribe to on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. To find us, use the search term American Historical Association. Welcome to AHR Interview, a production of the American Historical Review. I'm Daniel Story. Our guest in this episode is Catherine Olivarius, whose article, Immunity, Capital, and Power in Antebellum New Orleans, appears in the April 2019 issue of the AHR. Olivarius is Assistant Professor of History at Stanford University, where she focuses on the Antebellum South, Greater Caribbean, Slavery, and Disease. Her book, Necropolis, Disease, Power, and Capitalism in the Cotton Kingdom, is forthcoming from Harvard University Press. In her article, Olivarius explores the powerful and complex social and economic role that Yellow Fever played in antebellum New Orleans. She spoke with AHR editor Alex Lichtenstein. Welcome, Catherine, to AHR Interview. We're here to talk this afternoon about your article in the April issue of the American Historical Review, which takes up the question of death and disease in antebellum New Orleans. Now, uh, what I liked about this article was that you coin a new term, which I think people will immediately want to know about, which is immunocapital as a way of getting at an analysis of the intersection of, of disease, mortality, and questions of slavery in antebellum New Orleans. So perhaps you could explain what this term immunocapital means and, and why you hit upon it as a, as a way of developing your analysis. Sure. So antebellum New Orleans was um, the most lethal city in America. It was far, far more lethal than New York or Boston or even other southern cities like Charleston and Norfolk. And it was so lethal um, with about triple the sort of national mortality rate because of epidemic yellow fever, which visited the city almost every three years at epidemic proportions. Um, and this would kill between eight and 10% of the population every time an epidemic hit. And in certain immigrant neighborhoods, up to 20%. So this is um, what we would call a deathscape or what people at the time called a necropolis. So in this time period, people didn't really understand how yellow fever was spread. We know now, of course, that it's spread by mosquitoes, um, that mosquitoes are the vector, but they did not know this at the time. Um, and essentially the only um, protection that one could get against yellow fever was to survive it. So if you survive yellow fever, you gain lifetime immunity. And that was common knowledge. This was, this was common knowledge. common knowledge. They called it, what they called it at the time was acclimation. So you would essentially lean into yellow fever. You would get sick with it and you would survive. However, um, this was a very, very risky thing to do. About 50% of people died in the acclimating process. So people at the time, in all of their letters, in their medical journals, they always are talking about acclimation or acclimated citizens. And Can I, I ask you a, a question about this just in terms of research? So... Sure. When you went about researching this, did you keyword search for that term? For acclimated? Yes. yes. Well, later okay. on I did. Um, when I, I, initially, when I went into the archives, I was sort of surprised to be seeing this language everywhere. It kept on coming up. You read these mm -hmm. like eight-page letters and five pages of it are about your acclimation status and how, you know, whether or not you, you're sure that you survived yellow fever rather than malaria or bilious fever or breakbone fever or any of the other fevers that, are, that would abound. But you have to get yellow fever, and so. But people at the time then, so if you have, if you've survived it, you've done this risky thing, you've gotten yellow fever, and you survived. You wanted to leverage that, so you would leverage this by sort of convincing other people of your immune status that you were immune to this disease, and so this became a form of capital. 
something that you could market, you, someone, something that you, know, you could leverage in job interviews, that you could leverage when you were courting to get married. And how would you demonstrate that you had been infected with and survived the disease? So this is, you've hit the nail right on the, the, the very tricky head here. So demonstrating that you're acclimated is really, really tricky because yellow fever does not leave physical scars. Unlike so it's not like smallpox. Yeah. Right. So if you get right. smallpox, you can generally, you know, not, not everyone will have residual scars, but for the most part, you know, that's sort of part and parcel of the disease. Not so in this case. And not everyone actually got this sort of telltale symptom of yellow fever, which is black vomit. So if you sort of, it, it's, you would vomit up at the end of your disease, um, generally right before death, this um, coagulated blood that looks like coffee grounds. Um, that was a sort of telltale symptom, but not everyone had that. And so you have to basically perform your acclimation by convincing others of your immune status. And the way you did this was by, um, you would provide letters of recommendation from people, other people um, in New Orleans that when you, went, when you applied for a job, which said that you had lived in New Orleans for 18 years without, in, without interruption, or that you had lived um, consecutively for six years in the tropical zone. Or sometimes you would get a doctor's certificate that would essentially assert that you were acclimated, verifying that this was the disease that you had had and that you had survived it. Mm. And so you see this all over the place and not just in sort of interpersonal relationships, but you know, insurance companies, um, life insurance companies wouldn't, essentially wouldn't um, insure non-acclimated, un unacclimated people because it was just simply too risky. And so you see these insurance applications, affidavits from doctors saying, you know, I, I care for this person during their illness in 1849 and um, I can assure that this was yellow fever and not something else. So once that immunity becomes something that's leverageable or marketable, uh, what kind of consequences does that have? Because then you, you join it with the term capital. So why is it in fact a, a form of capital and how does it operate as such in New Orleans at this time? So performing acclimation successfully was terribly, terribly important because it controlled where you worked, it controlled the kinds of jobs that you could get, it controlled how much money you were paid, it controlled the neighborhoods that you lived in, and of course it controlled sort of your sense of belonging in this wider world. So you have basically that if you could prove that you were acclimated, um, you were um, in general, you could access much higher realms of social, political, and economic power. Um, so not only could you get better jobs, politicians took you seriously once you were acclimated, because if you were acclimated, you were considered to be an acclimated citizen. Um, and they often sort of conjoin these terms. So that this is, that this is, that you are an unacclimated stranger or you are an acclimated citizen. And this means that you are now considered to be permanent, legitimate in New Orleans, that you are going to be a lasting player that it has to be taken seriously. It means you'll be around during the sixth yeah. season, for example. It means you won't drop dead during the next epidemic. Right. And you see this, you see this all over sort of job applications which, with people saying, you, you know, hire me because I'm not just, I'm not going to die in October. I'm so this was a very, very seasonal disease during yes. the high mosquito season, although that's not how they understood it. They just knew it came in certain months. Yes. The fever season was generally about late July to October. Um, that could be sort of shortened some, some years and lengthened other years, um, depending on the weather. But, you know, this is, this becomes, so, and in, in, in this period, to during the fever season, um, if you're unacclimated, you either risk getting the disease, um, which many people did because it was the only way to progress in New mm. Orleans. And how, how did they do that? I mean, how did they actually risk or even, uh, you suggest that they deliberately got infected. How did they go about doing that? Yes, I've, so they would, 
deliberately seek sickness. This is, and this is sort of the, it, it's a crazy thing to see in people's letters that where they are, they're bracing to get this disease. They make sure that they stay in town. They make sure that they stay in crowded boarding houses. They make sure wow. that they are putting, putting themselves physically into spaces where disease is prevalent. Because Any letters of people saying out of disappointment, oh, I stayed the sick <laughs> and I didn't get sick again, or, or to not get sick was a demonstration of potential immunity in and of itself, perhaps. So, so you, again, this is, that's precisely right. So I, I haven't seen many letters of people sort of thwarted in their acclimation plans. Um, for the most part, it's people who boast after the fact, who say that they passed the Rubicon. Hi, right. mom, hi, dad. L- listen, this, this great thing happened to me. Um, and if you, it's, it's, it's not just that you declare it, it's that the sort of your physical presence is demonstration in and of itself, right. that you are willing to take the, that sort of epidemiological risk, that you are gambling your life in pursuit of capital and pursuit of, of promotion and pursuit of legitimacy in this place. And that has a, a lot of very deep and important social meaning here. And so it's essentially you, premised on gambling in the first So if you go for a loan, the bank is going to say, well, yeah, you're yeah. a pretty good bet. You're going to stick around and pay it back. Right. And you see, you see even in sort of the Dun & Bradstreet credit reports, for example, from this time period, that one of the first things they list is how long the person's been in the city mm. or that this is, this is a key aspect of your credit, of, of your capital, that this is you know, a marketable asset that basically until you can you know, prove sufficiently that you have it, um, you are dead in the water. You're in this sort of purgatory waiting and waiting um, for this moment of sort of deliverance into acclimated status. And so the importance in part of this article is not just how immunity advanced the prospects of white men, mm-hmm. uh, but also how it was linked to the understanding of the accumulation of capital through black bodies. So right. what's exciting about the article is precisely that you look at both sides of this coin, New Orleans, of course, being a slave society and one deeply divided by race. So how did this operate when it came to the valuation and the experience of African-Americans and of slaves? So New Orleans was this basically the seat of America's slave and cotton kingdoms during the antebellum period. This was the place through which most of the cotton that was grown by slaves passed on its way around the world. It was also a huge slave trading port. So. Theoretically, at least, amino capital could have transacted race. That black and white immunity is identical. It was identical at, this, at that time. But people in New Orleans, white people at this time period, came up with this very sort of complex Gordian knot of logic to justify slavery on yellow fever terms. So at the time, everyone, all these doctors and politicians, and even just lay people, white people, they would agree essentially, or they would argue that black people were naturally resistant to yellow fever, that there was something innate in black people that made them particularly immune or safe from this disease. And this became a justification for widespread racial slavery because I have people even describing um, black slavery as humanitarian because it protected white people from spaces and labor that would kill them. So you have this widespread belief in black immunity, which is not grounded in any kind of fact, on the one hand. On the other hand, no slaver would buy an unacclimated slaves, a slave that was not expressly described as acclimated mm. in the slave market. And so you have these sort of two competing um, actions, shall we say, that don't really li- align in, um, factually. So in the slave market, like likely or like number one or like fancy, acclimated was a very common descriptor and acclimated slaves 
generally sold for about 25% more in the slave market. Um, and that's when the slave market was in session, which was never during the fever season. Only mm. 2% of slave sales happened in New Orleans. Only 2%. Only 2% during the sort of fever season from of the late summer to autumn. Um, because it was considered to be too dangerous to bring enslaved people who were property to New Orleans to do these slave sales. And so the whole idea behind this kind of was that was vested in this, of course, was that um, racial slavery, um, black people could not um, have immunocapital, but they were, of course, immune, and their immunocapital was white immunocapital. It would only lead to to white people more efficiently accumulating capital on their plantations or in their households, and so a black person could be immune, but they could not have amino capital. Only white people could have amino capital, and this was another way of essentially justifying this deeply complex um, white supremacist system of white of racial slavery in the Deep South. Now, you also have uh, some remarks about gender in your article. I was rereading it this afternoon. So this also, of course, cut across lines of gender and affected mm-hmm. women's lives and, and experience and the family as well. Sure. So these are some of the most, these are some of the most fun sources to read, actually, um, of newspapers and letters from fathers imploring their daughters not to fall in love with anyone who was not acclimated. Um, it was, they were considered to be a an unsuitable choice um, unless you were acclimated. And you have these letters from father saying, you know, dear, please, please. Um, he is, you know, we don't know if he's going to live very long, um, let alone whether you should marry him. So let him, let him get yellow fever first. And then after that, we can talk about it. Mm. Then again, um, that would be a good way of getting inheritance quickly without having to, you know, worry. No, about precisely, precisely. Husband. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, but the, but if, if a woman's sort of sole or chief goal um, in marriage was to produce children, mm. you wanted to marry an acclimated woman because you wanted her to live long enough to be able to do that. And so you have in, you know, in courting sessions and moments where people are meeting for the first time or they're, thinking about marriage, you know, you have men asking, are you sure you've had the yellow fever? Are you sure about that? Mm, and you have evidence of, of this. You have evidence, you know, are you sure that your doctor was right when they diagnosed you with that? And so generally this also means that Creole women, so women born in New Orleans, women born in Louisiana or in the tropics were a hot commodity because this meant that, um, so children generally had sort of milder flu-like cases of yellow fever as children, um, which, so Creoles were considered to be sort of safe once they had reached about five years of age. And so you wanted to marry these Creole women because they were considered to be permanent. They could live long enough to do all of their womanly duties to you in this, um, in this society. So you. is it safe to say that actually created a far more insular society when it came to uh, family, marriage, and um, property, and sort of passage of wealth. In other words, there were fewer outsiders coming from the north or from non-acclimated regions making New Orleans a particularly tight-knit community, perhaps. Sure, and one one great example of this is Monsell White, who was a Scottish immigrant who came to New Orleans penniless when he was 13. He got acclimated and um, he quickly progressed in this society to becoming, he was a bookkeeper, then he was a factory owner. He married a French Creole woman um, who was very, very wealthy. And this was a part of his sort of ascent in this society that if you marry a rich Creole woman, you become socially more powerful in the first place. But when she died, he married her sister, Heloise. Mm. This was, and so you see a lot of this of people sort of seeking to keep this insular, um, this, this capital was transferable of course, and of amino capital, but it also did 
give a huge preference to sort of the people who were Creoles, people who were native born, people who had demonstrated sufficiently that they were permanent by getting acclimated here. So you see this, it's, it's, it's very inward looking, um, very inward looking and creates a very sort of rigid, um, if invisible social hierarchy. And the other thing you do in this article is you try and suggest that if we pay attention to really what you said is, was staring you in the face as you were doing research on New Orleans, this, this acclimatization process, uh, if we pay attention to that, that makes us potentially rethink the relationship between slavery and capitalism, which of course is a very important topic now and a huge growing recent literature on, on this issue, mm -hmm. what the relationship between slavery and capitalism was. So how does this aspect of the story help us rewrite that narrative or rethink that analysis? So as you said, sort of the, the, the there's, this is a booming historiographical field right now, this idea of slave racial capitalism, um, which is this vast system in which um, enslaved bodies created were, were lay at the bedrock of not just Southern capitalism, but American capitalism and global capitalism. Right. So I think essentially, so this, what's, what's really fascinating to me in the sources themselves is that people in New Orleans and in the wider region and across the tropics were really invested in this process of acclimation. They, they are obsessed with their health. All of their letters are about this. Even letter, letters, you know, between agents um, and bankers for the Rothschilds or for Barings Bank, they talk about this at length and at nauseum. So this is very important to them. This, you know, tracking disease, when it's coming, who's acclimated, who's not, this mattered to them. So it should matter to us in that respect. And I think also the sort of prevalence of disease can't be written off as background noise because this was a major controlling factor in their own lives. When you are living in a city where 8% of the people are dying every year, that matters. That matters a great deal. Um, and, and it should change our narrative about how we thought, how we think about the development of the cotton kingdom and of the slave cotton, the, sort of the slave and cotton kingdoms, which is that a lot of this historiography essentially suggests that New Orleans, it was a tough place to get in on the ground floor, but if you, stick with, if you stuck with it and you had a pinch of luck and you were ruthless, you could succeed. Everybody had the potential for success in slave racial capitalism if you were white. But disease made that not the case. This disease meant that essentially half of all the people coming to New Orleans, ambitious people, people um, bent on enslaving black people and brutally so very often, about half of those people would end up in a coffin within one or two years of arriving in New Orleans. And that changed the calculus of this place. That changed how people thought about the world around them, how they belonged, who belonged, and capital itself, this sort of larger system of capitalism. So essentially, immunocapitalism is asking us to think about, to sort of insert, insert disease into our understanding of capitalism. That um, if we, that this was a major controlling factor in people's lives um, not that long ago, even still, of course it is um, in, in different ways, but this is a major modality of capitalism that needs to be addressed. Otherwise we can't see the full picture. Excellent. So, and finally, I mean, to, to kind of throw back the, the veil on our, our review process, I mean, there was some back and forth between you and readers and me about whether we should use this term immunocapitalism or not, precisely because although it, it sounds very nice and it makes sense the way you've explained it, 
that was not a term obviously being used by people in yeah. 19th century New Orleans. And you and I had some back and forth on this, and we agreed that it was a, a term worth applying, even though the historical subjects themselves wouldn't have applied it. So what's the rationale for that choice? So the rationale for that choice is that immuno, so people in New Orleans, people, survivors of yellow fever thought about their acclimation as a form of capital. But this is not, this is neither yellow fever nor New Orleans specific, nor is it specific to the 19th century. The point of this is that I, you know, it's, it's always fascinating to me when I, I found over the last few years that people love talking about disease. Everyone is sort of grossed out initially, but when it gets down to it, they want to hear about symptoms. They want to hear about death rates. They want to hear about this. There's some sort of human fascination with this. And I've heard from medievalists and from Africanists and from East Asianists that they see a similar process going on with other diseases in their locales, mm. whether it be HIV or Ebola or smallpox. Um, the disease, this sort of the idea of making a more sort of universal, if anachronistic term, like you know, capital, is that this is exportable. It can be exported, exported to other places in the wider global past. And so it's sort of, you know, it's, it's disease agnostic, and I want it to be seen as that, that this is, um, that, you know, yellow fever had a huge impact on antebellum New Orleans, but other diseases have had similarly huge impacts on life in other places and on other different social groups. And that's important to explore for and understand the texture of these societies. On the social and economic decisions that people yeah. make on an everyday Absolutely. basis, or the way they understand themselves in a, in a society has to do with right their 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 disease or their susceptibility or immunity right. to to particular diseases. So right. that's a portable concept, uh, right. medical and social and economic history right. is our hope. Right. And that's, of course, what the AHR is always trying to do, <laughs> create portable concepts from specific stories. So right. I'm very pleased that this will be in our pages. So thank you very much, Catherine. Thank you. That was Alex Lichtenstein speaking with Stanford historian Catherine Oliverius. Her article, Immunity, Capital, and Power in Antebellum New Orleans, appears in the April 2019 issue of the AHR. You can listen to more episodes of this podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Find us with the search term, American Historical Association. I'm Daniel Story, and this is AHR Interview. Thanks for listening.